0: Welcome, everyone. This is Sasha Moving Mountains. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming back Joshua Spodick, who is the host of the award-winning The Sustainable Life podcast, a three-time TEDx speaker, the number one best-selling author of Initiative and Leadership Step by Step, a professor at NYU, and a leadership coach. Today, we'll resume our conversation to learn about his latest endeavors. Welcome to Moving Mountains, Josh. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You are a valued contributor on the Sasha Talks platform. The last time you and I crossed paths was about four years ago, and we talked about your number one best-selling book, Initiative and Leadership Step-by-Step. And since then, I'm aware that you've been able to write more and you've had more endeavors that you're welcome to share with. What happened since last you and I reconnected?
1: Yeah, uh, you mentioned a couple things, and I'll I'll talk about the next book, Um, Initiative. Both books emerged from courses that I taught at NYU, and they're the book versions of the courses. And as our last time was about leadership step-by-step, which was a set of exercises that if you do them, you'll develop the skills, experiences, and beliefs of an effective leader. The other course that I taught that was very popular and got very high ratings uh, was, it was at various times entrepreneurship or social entrepreneurship, and depending on which school I taught it in within NYU. And I kept finding that I, it, the course is very experiential, very project-based. So students are doing things and going out in the world and making things, happen, making things happen, although distinctly different from another method, like the Lean Launchpad is a different way of doing things. But this way, it was for students who really might not have had any sense of what they wanted to do ahead of time. A lot of students for a lot of other entrepreneurship active classes, you have to have... a what you're doing first before you start it. These students oftentimes didn't know that they were taking an experiential class. They thought it was going to be reading and writing papers. And a lot of them were getting job offers, offers for funding, opportunities for promotion for the students who were working at the time. And I knew that I was onto something that was different and new and very, very effective. And also, a lot of the students were doing things that weren't necessarily starting a for-profit venture from scratch. A lot of them were starting nonprofits, doing community organizations, or in family type things. And so I couldn't call the next book Entrepreneurship because it was much more general. And I actually went to bat with this. My publisher was like, put entrepreneurship on the cover. That's what sells books. And I said, it's much more general than that. It's easier, more fun, and more effective. And so the book is Initiative, a proven method to bring your passions to life and work. And it's it really is about a lot of people come out of school, they've learned a lot of facts and figures, they know how to analyze. They don't necessarily know their own passions. They don't necessarily know what really what they really love to do. And this helps you find that and then make it bring it to fruition so that the people that you serve are people that support you back and they have a vested interest and, and they have a vested interest in your success. That was a long answer. I can go on a lot longer, but why don't I stop there and, and have I said too much or too little?
0: Oh, no, well, I was going to mention there's an underlying theme in your works that learning is one thing, knowing is one thing, but it has no meaning unless you practice it.
1: Yes. I've, I mean, I went through school. I have a PhD in physics. I have an MBA. These are Ivy League degrees. I reached the pinnacle of this style of education. And I did have a couple classes in there that were more project-based, that were more experiential. But since then, I've, I've learned a lot more, not just about what to learn, but how to learn, both me learning myself and also as a professor, as a teacher, as a coach, how to get, help others learn. And experience is absolutely necessary. If you want to learn – I mean, if you just want to learn facts, sure, read a book, memorize. But if you want to do things, you have to practice it. I mean, some schools get this, like medical school. You can't graduate medical school without having – you uh, practice your thing you have to you, you, no one wants a surgeon who has just read books on surgery likewise there's music or sports you can't just read the book on the the rule book on tennis and expect that you're gonna know how to play tennis somehow we've gotten the idea that if you just learn case studies that that helps you become an entrepreneur but You got to do it
0: did you come to that realization during your academic and professional career or was it something that you knew and then you were testing it out
1: yourself as time progressed? There were one or two classes that I took as an undergrad, as a student, as an undergrad as also as a grad student, where I was learning by, by doing and the professor knew deliberately had designed a course where I would learn from experience. And I knew that they were special at the time, but I didn't know why. I just knew that it was something different. I presumed it was just a great teacher. And they were good teachers. But only afterward, I have a friend who we've been friends since college. And he became a principal of a high school in Philadelphia called Science Leadership Academy. When I was in graduate school, he was just starting the school. A couple years later, Barack Obama, who was president at the time, spoke to the first graduating class of this high school. Bill Gates had already gone to the school to speak to them about, I don't know, about education stuff. And I'm like, this school is it's a public high school in Philadelphia. There's nothing, it doesn't have any special funding. It doesn't have any, it's just a regular public high school. And how is he getting the President of the United States to show up? So I started asking him about education. What, what why is your school so different? And he invited me to come to some of their, um, their workshops and a weekend of, uh, what, it's called EduCon. And I started learning about a different style of education. It's growing in K to 12. Some universities get it, but very rarely. A lot more coaches and um, professional trainers, they get it more, they, they do it more, although they probably don't know why it works. But I really took a deep dive into how to teach this stuff, how to make sure that I'm doing it effectively, that I'm building on all the theory and practice of generations of, of teachers and professors and educators. And I got to say that I mentioned that I went to that first Educon, the first one that I went to. That was in January, and it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The following Wednesday was my first class where I was teaching uh, of the semester. Where I was teaching, um, that was called entrepreneurial, what's it called entrepreneurial Marketing and Sales, Entrepreneurial Sales and Marketing. And Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I went there. And on Friday, I started really getting what was going on. And I decided, you know, this is a better way to teach my course. I have all these professors and teachers here who know this style of learning. I'm gonna change my syllabus in a couple days. And I went, and I basically did project-based learning on project-based learning. And Saturday and Sunday, I asked everyone I could, what, like how can I make the syllabus better, what problems might I be facing, and things like that. On the train ride back from Philadelphia to New York, I finished the, the syllabus, I completely redid it. On Wednesday, three days later, I went into class and started teaching that way. And that semester, I got almost the highest reviews from students in the entire school. And as much as I'd like to say there's something special on me, it was really I was implementing something that other people had figured out very well. And it's a, in my opinion, for, all, for the students that I've had, I believe it's a better way of learning, a better way of education.
0: Because your methods are very effective and they've been tested and proven, you also coach, and I'm sure there are many aspirational clients that want to work with you. What are a few characteristics that you look for that lets you know that they will most likely make it to the finish line?
1: That's a good question. I mean, when when, when someone contacts me and says I'm looking for coaching, the first thing I do is I schedule a one-hour call no charge, no obligation, because we have to see if there's a match. And the most important thing when I'm coaching is, well, there's several most important things, but one of them is, do we get along? Are are they interested in the way that I work? Uh, I give a lot of exercises. I'm not there to, there's a lot of value for a therapist, someone who can listen to your problems and uh, connect patterns in your life with what therapists do. That's not what I am. And I'm not there to lecture to you. I'm there to help you find what problems you face and give you the skills and experiences and beliefs to face those problems so that you solve them yourself. I want people to walk away more capable, not just having solved a problem or learned a skill, but to be able to forever do that. So students, or sorry, uh, clients client who stick with me for a long time, they're always looking to go to the next level to the next level to the next level. They've mastered each level that... Recover. So it's it's someone who really wants it's someone who wants to take on challenges and develop themselves and learn. If they were there's a lot of overlap between if someone is a fitness person, I help you reach new levels of fitness. And along the way, and along the way, there's um, increased self-awareness. You tend to whatever your you thought your potential was, you tend to realize it's it's farther than you thought before. You get a lot more focus, so that things that waste your time. You, are more easily, you can more easily put them away to focus on what you really want to do. At the beginning, I mean, well, I look for them a personal match. Do we get along well? Does my style of giving you exercises to take you to the next level, does that work? The people who usually find me are people who tend to be, they have a background something like mine. It's more analytical. I mean, casually, I would say more geeky. I have a science background, so the social and emotional skills that I teach. I didn't grow up learning them. I had to learn them as an adult. So that means I know how to teach them because I I had to learn them consciously. Occasionally I get someone who was, you know, born or from a very young age was charismatic and had leadership skills from wherever they got it. But mostly they're more analytical, but they want to develop.
0: What do you tell your students about
1: failure and the perception of failure? It's funny because, you know, there's so many different meanings to the word. You know, to me, there's no negative connotation to the word failure. Just, that's how we learn. I don't think I really use the term that much. It's, it's, I say, like if I give them an exercise to work on, say most, most clients I meet month, uh, weekly. So we meet for an hour a week, usually online, on the phone. They're in New York, sometimes in person. And I say, okay, here's the exercise. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go up to 10 people, and you're going to do blah, blah, blah. And then I say, now practice with me, because you're going to make mistakes. If, if you haven't done this before, if you haven't spoken to people in, the, in this particular way, then you're probably going to make mistakes. So make the mistakes with me. And so they do it with me, and they make mistakes. And I say, that's how you learn. That's how, you know, if you're going to play a, if you're going to learn to play piano, you play scales, and the first time you do it, your thumb hits harder than your pinky, even though you're trying to get them to hit roughly the same, so the sound sounds the same, the muscles in the thumb are stronger. So you've got to practice and practice. And the first bunch of times, you don't do it the way you're supposed to, or the way you intend to, and you practice. Is each one of those times a failure? Someone could put it that way. Yeah, I mean, if I go to Carnegie Hall to see a piano player play and they're playing like I do, I would say that person's failed. But if they're the first time doing it, of course that's how you do it. And that's how we learn. You, you know, if you learn to play tennis, you hit the ball as many times as it takes until you have a rhythm, you have, you know, you get your feet right and you get your grip right and so forth. Everything leading up to that, maybe those are mistakes. I say it's how we learn. And if it happens at a bigger level, you I've come to you all, and you've mastered it, you've done it a million times before, and yet you still hit the wrong note. To me, that's just how you get to the next level. It's, it's not mistakes. I've, you know, I'm learning myself. I'm uh, learning to sing as a side thing. And I recorded, I mean, to me, to hear my voice is cringe, it makes you cringe. But I know that after I pack, people are gonna hear me, and they're gonna say, oh, you're natural. That was so easy. Of course you can do it. You are born that way. And I'm going to say, no, you've got to listen to the original recordings because they're really cringy. I put them all, if someone wants to laugh at me, go to find out on my, on my podcast of my early stuff. When I went to record it, I felt like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going to let other people hear this. I'm so afraid. I'm so scared. I don't want people to see this or hear this. But once I recorded it and put it up and – Later, after I got a little bit better and I heard it, I thought, now I want more people to hear this. I want people to see and hear where I started from. Yeah, all failure. I've done it enough that now I embrace it. I just don't think of it as a negative thing. I've, I've paid my dues. I've, I, and, and, and Don't get me wrong. I don't want to say I'm like some um, Dalai Lama or someone who, like, am impervious to feeling like it still gets me. I'm, I'm speaking with more confidence than I have when I'm doing something new myself. It's a challenge, but it's how we learn.
0: I agree with you. I personally don't perceive failure to be a negative thing. I just view it as trial and error, and then you move forward. You're also the host of the award-winning The Sustainable Life podcast. How has your relationship with meaning and purpose evolved compared to when you
1: started out with the first how How's it evolved? That's a great question because if, I, if you had asked me, do I have meaning and purpose in the podcast when I began, I would have said, of course, this is by far the most important thing, like the most thing that I've focused on. Well, there have been other things, but I, mean, I really wanted to focus on it a lot. And I felt it was very meaningful and purposeful. And it was. Now that I'm two and a half, three years into it, on a whole other level. I just did a post on my, on my blog where I said, I'm mm-hmm. going to go back a step. To give some context, Uh, stewardship and environmental leadership are very important to me. And I think that these things are missing. There's a lot of people telling people what to do out there, which is not the same thing as leading. And so I started a podcast to bring leadership to sustainability, to work on the environment, to stewardship. And I also do this myself. I believe to lead others, you must first lead yourself. And I do lots of things to reduce my emissions and things like that. So one of the things I do is I pick up litter every day. I've been doing this for four years, since the pandemic in New-, in New York City. The amount of litter is skyrocketing. It's insane. I can't believe, and I've seen the pictures of other countries where five, 10 years ago it looked like this, and now it's mountains of garbage. And I will not watch that happen without doing what I can to change that, because I can see that the United States can easily have, outside of its cities, huge mountains of garbage. And not say mountains, I mean like sea from space size mountains of garbage. And if they're 10 years ahead of us, we've got to change fast. So I pick up litter every day. And here's something I realized that I did the blog post, getting back to what I was just saying. I don't pick up litter because I care about the environment. I care about the environment because I pick up litter. Now, I didn't start picking litter out of the blue. I did care at first, somewhat. But the action of doing things builds the passion. It builds the awareness. It builds the meaning and the purpose. If I just said, oh, of course, of course everyone cares about the environment. They want clean air, clean water, clean land. But the more that I do, the more that I get down on my hands and knees and pick up other people's litter, the more that I, all the different things I do, I take two years to throw one load of garbage in my house. That's how little garbage that I get because I avoid packaged food and things like that. The more that I do that, the more meaning and purpose I find. Anyone out there who thinks, I just have to, Asking myself questions and, and, meditate. and I, I meditate. I meditate. It's supremely valuable. But just asking questions, taking quizzes online to find out what, what your thing is, that doesn't compare with diving in and doing the work. And you know, some things you're going to dive in, as I did, and, and, oh, that's not what I really like. But I don't view that as a waste of time. I view that as guiding me toward what I care about more. So the meaning and purpose that have come from doing, from talking to people, from examining my values, from pushing myself and challenging myself and giving in, giving up sometimes and then finding why to get back into it. But always, in the words of Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, being a professional, showing up, the action takes it to another level. And everyone out there who you don't have something that is your big thing that you want to do every day no matter what it takes, you kind of start somewhere. And starting from wherever you can will lead to finding what you do care about more, more than not starting and hoping to find some incredible passion without having putting work to it I mean no one goes into a relationship I can see someone and think that person's beautiful and has a great way about them but to fall in love I got to get a fight sometimes got to depend on each other things have to happen you know you got to learn all the different facets of the person same with the project I enjoy reading your signatures because
0: there were two things that caught my attention it's been over 64 months since it's flown let's say if you receive an invitation to visit Europe in person would you entertain another mode of transportation to get to Europe? Or would you just make a mindful choice
1: to entertain it remotely? Once I realized that I, I, I never decided I'm never going to fly again, I just challenged myself to go for one year without flying to see if I could do it. At the time I thought, I'm taking one for the team, it's obviously going to suck, it's going to be a horrible experience because I need to travel for work, I need to travel for family, I need to travel for fun and adventure. And then I realized from actually doing that I liked it more, and so every year, I just say, all right, let's go for another year. And at a certain point, I realized that I was having more control of my career, more time with my family, more more um, intimacy with people around me, more fun and adventure, more cultural exchange without flying than with. Which no one who hears me believes me. Everybody pushes back on that. It's something either one experiences or not. But if you don't believe me, that's your business. But my experience was that I really love it. And when I realized I'm um, I'm not going to get up North America without flying. I realized, oh, I've got to learn to sail. So I, I took sailing lessons. And actually, I was invited to give a talk on food and sustainability in Sweden. And they were helping me figure out how to get there by sailboat because they were about sustainability too. The pandemic hit. Oh, by the way, and this was before Greta uh, that I started learning to sail. And I actually met her boat when it arrived in New York and um, spoke briefly to her and to the skipper. Uh, very, very briefly. In any case, I was, if not for the pandemic, I would have sailed to Sweden to give that talk. We almost put it together for this spring. Probably it'll happen next spring that I'll get my first sail across the Atlantic. I've also been invited to something in, um, uh, to visit a school in, and, and spend some time there in Thailand. So I expect at some point I'll sail across the Pacific. Obviously uh, much bigger. And I'm, I'm very excited when people really, when I'm working with a, um, an event planner who really values sustainability and wants to work with me to do this, it's fantastic. And I can tell you that when I sail across the Atlantic, that sail is going to be more of what travel means to me than had I been flying across all the time, but just getting into a plane and going across. So would I entertain it? Yes, I love it. I love it. I can't wait. I believe it's going to be the experience of a lifetime the first time I go, and then it will probably sail across a couple other times.
0: Another thing that caught my attention was the gratitude emails that you entertain in a week. So how does the gratitude email, how did it come about, and how is it going
1: for you right now? I attended a talk, and the speaker talked about, um, she talked about gratitude. And I had learned a long time, there's all sorts of research that shows that one of the common exercises is to write down three things you feel gratitude toward when you fall asleep at night, so people have gratitude notebooks. And there's all kinds of research that says how valuable that is. For some reason, of all the things that I've done, I, didn't, I never really picked up on that. And so um, it was um, Joe... Oh, what was his name? Oh, I'm embarrassed that I don't have it right off the tip of my tongue. Joe Polish was the speaker, and he said, anyone in this room If you do the following and tell me about it, then you'll get a free one of his marketing courses. I thought, oh, my God, this is incredible. Of course I'm going to do this. Apparently, I'm the only one who did it. But it was to write 10 pieces of gratitude per day for a week. So I had to think of 70 different people that I had some sort of feeling of gratitude toward and write them an email. And I tell you the first day, easy. I can think of 10 people right off the bat. Next day, also easy. Next day, now I'm starting to hit thirty-one through, uh, the 21 through 30, a little bit harder, but by it's hard to get to 70. But also, by day 3, 4, 5, the people that I wrote on day 1, 2, 3 are writing me back. And some of them are really touching messages. And it becomes a really time-challenging effort, but very touching effort. And I can see why the research shows that gratitude is so effective, because... I start to think about all my close relationships. All, I mean, some of them, some of the people I feel gratitude toward, I, I feel gratitude because they hurt me. And I learned from that experience. How do you write that message? It's really, it's really challenging. And yet I spent not one penny on it. The time I spent doing it would have been, I don't know, time watching TV. It was, it, so basically it took no time and no money. And some relationships got stronger it was a fantastic experience. I recommend it to anyone.
0: And for all of the fitness people, the fact that you also include the daily average spent on fitness is less than a penny. What is your day-to-day fitness
1: regimen that has helped you evolve over time? Well, that's a long answer. So I'm going to just give over the top stuff. The, uh, when I was a kid growing up, I was chubby. My stepbrother would, like, poke at my, the fat on my body. I wasn't fat, but I was overweight. And... Then in high school, a friend did cross-country, started cross-country. In college, though, was when I really started becoming athletic because I fell in love with the sport of ultimate frisbee and went to nationals a couple times and played at world level. So I was a pretty high-level athlete then. Then I started doing marathons when, I mean, by my mid-30s, it's harder to play team sports. People get married and have kids and can't really do, you know, it's not a professional sport. So people start dropping off. I ran a couple marathons. I really loved the experience, but... I didn't want to keep doing that forever, it's kind of boring, and I don't know if it's particularly healthy. I started going to the gym down the block. The gym costs money, if it's raining I'm not sure if I want to go, do I shower there, do I shower back at home, like this, all, all the laundry stuff, is kind of a pain, the logistics of it. And then I read this article in the New York Times that said, they asked a bunch of fitness experts what's the single best exercise. And they talked about the butterfly swim stroke, which is like apparently a fantastic exercise, but you need a swimming pool and it's really hard to learn. They said the burpee, which I'd never heard of. And ultimately they settled on walking, but the burpee was actually above walking. They just said, but who would really do burpees and only burpees? And whereas everyone walks. I mean, not everyone has legs. I mean, there's wheelchairs and things like that. But, um, so I looked at the burpee. If you drop down, do a push-up and then jump up. And a friend and I decided to try burpees 10 burpees a day for 30 days. And as I was doing them, I was like, this is a really great all-around body exercise. It gets most of the body, heart and lungs. doesn't cost anything. Don't need a spotter. No equipment. Very low risk of injury. And since I started, I have not stopped. I've done. I started with 10 a day. And as I've gotten stronger and more fit, I would add more and more and more. So now I do about 50 a day. And after a while, adding... I, instead of adding more burpees, I would add more stretches and more other types of exercises, almost always bodyweight exercises. I have a few kettlebells now, too. And so I wake up in the morning and I do usually three sets of nine burpees followed by a hamstring stretch, followed by a whole bunch of stretches and a whole bunch of, of exercises. And it's 20, 25 minutes in the morning and I do a different set in the evening, 20, 25 in the evening. And then I do that every single day. I haven't missed it. I haven't spent a penny on any of that stuff. Oh, I got the kettlebell. So the kettlebells I spent $100 on kettlebells because they got used off the of Craigslist, and separately I also used off of Craigslist bought a rowing machine, and I have a, a lifting day, a rowing day, or a cardio day, which could be running, could be rowing, could be biking, um, and this is, I'm not gonna, that's probably a lot of depth there, or a lot of detail, but I do this every day, and in 10 years, in the past 10 years, i bought the, the kettlebells and the rowing machine all for my like cap price. And I just love when I walk past an Equinox, which is the, the expensive gym. And I know that they're spending every month, you no, know, in two months they spend what I spent in 10 years. And my ex-girlfriend, we were still friends, she brought me into one of her classes once. And I was doing just fine. Like I was, I was as fit as anyone there except I wasn't paying anything for it. Because, you know, it's very important to me that what I do is accessible. I don't like that people... I mean, a lot of times when I say I have an Ivy League degree, people say, oh, you're privileged. I don't talk about like, the welfare stuff growing up and the, the very dangerous neighborhoods that we spent time growing up in. But I want to make sure that what I do, anyone can do. And that there's no... No one has to have any special anything to do these things. And that's very important to me, that anyone can do a burpee. If you have arms and legs, you can probably do it. And if, you're, if it's hard at the beginning, you can start with what you can start with, and you can work your way up to it. And that's why I put how much money I spent on it, because I don't like people feeling like Josh can do something that I can't, can't or anyone else can do something that I can't. I want it's, it's avail- I wanna make sure these things are available to nearly everyone. It's not easy. I didn't say anyone can, you know, you're going to work up a sweat. It's hard. But you can start small and and build. But that accessibility is very, very important to me. I want to make sure everyone, and that's why on sustainability, I go up to the Bronx and I give workshops up there for how to do the things that I do because it's not just, I don't just want people who have, been born with special privileges to be able to do to achieve their absolute limits of of what their potential is, even if it's beyond what they thought it was.
0: I appreciate you sharing the accessibility factor, because there are many people who think when they have the resources, then they could make changes in their life. And one other detail, which I find to be a very mindful choice, or it's the result of a mindful choice, is your resting pulse, which is 45 beats per minute. Are there any meditative activities that you do when you begin or end your day? How are you able to average
1: 45 beats per minute? Well, yes, I do meditate. So I have I, I mentioned the, the burpee-based calisthenics that I do every morning and every evening. Separate from that, I have a five-day cycle of uh, day one is a lifting day with the, those kettlebells. Then the next day is a meditation day. So it's not like uh, working my muscles, but it's generally sitting for 20 minutes, full lotus position with my hands behind uh, in this um, uh, reverse prayer pose. And I vary the meditation with, um, I occasionally will use an app, but usually I do Vipassana. And the next day is a cardio day, and the next day is a meditation day. And so it's a five-day cycle, two of which I do 20 minutes of meditation. Um, I've also done several 10-day, no talking, no reading, no writing uh, Vipassana retreats, and a couple of shorter five-day, three-day ones as well. But I think, so that answers the question about do I meditate? And do I do meditative things? But I don't think that gets my pulse rate down. I mean, it helps me relax. I think the pulse rate is more from when I do the cardio stuff. I mean, three sets of nine burpees is a pretty high-intensity interval type thing. I think the high-intensity intervals is what does it when I do with the rowing, And also, I try to, you know, I, when I go out and pick up litter every day, I'm usually walking a few miles, getting things done while I'm doing that. But I think it's, I think it's the cardio that does it. I mean, Running marathons tends to build your heart and lungs. Rowing, I, I, rowing is a really good exercise for your heart and lungs. And I'll do tabatas on that, and I do long rows sometimes. Yeah, I haven't checked my pulse in a while, I, I had an app on my phone, I haven't, I got to reload the app. I, once it said, I think 40, 40 I think was the lowest I've ever seen.
0: And Josh, as we start to wrap things up, I recall last time you had mentioned you were doing comedy. Uh, are you still doing comedy? And what are the new projects that you're focusing on
1: in the present? Oh, you didn't just see the big smile that came on my face when you asked that. I, yeah, I, um, I've done open mic stand-up a few times as a way to hone my skills of um, public performance. You know, I do a lot of corporate presentations and keynotes and talks. I believe there's an art in it. I don't think of it – I mean, yes, it's something to make money, but there's an art, a performance art, and that's part of the singing is was about and I took acting lessons and, and things to hone my performance skills. And corporate keynotes and stand-up comedy are the only ones where I think one person does everything. You write, you perform, you direct, you do everything. Most singers are singing songs that someone else wrote. Oftentimes there's a band or someone backing them up. Um, dancers, there's usually someone who choreographed it. But stand up comedy, one person writes it. I mean, maybe it would be light design, but generally it's one person who does everything. And I thought, this is something I can do. So, I, And plus, it was like nerve wracking in the way that I knew I was going from it. And so I did stand up comedy, I did open mic stand up. And then the pandemic made it go away, the open mic that I used to, that I liked going to. I presume it will start soon, I'll restart soon, and I'll probably go do it some, some more. For people who want to see my stuff, it's you, you just get four minutes on stage. So there's little four-minute videos of me that I put on my blog, and if you look up, you'll see. There's a couple funny jokes in there. I don't have it in me. You know, I've talked to serious stand-up comics, and all of them that I've talked to said when they first learned about stand-up, they, were, they knew that that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to make a room full of people laugh. And that's how I feel about leadership. I want to lead people through challenges, through the most difficult times. I prefer not to live in difficult times, but... Well, I'm going to segue with that over to what's next, is that with the third book, I finished the manuscript. I have an agent. We're looking for – we haven't yet started pitching the publishers, and I'm doing – to pre-sell the book now for a very short period of time, I'm doing workshops of sustainability leadership, what the book teaches. And the workshops give – I mean, they're really deep, involved, and – it's it's to teach people to do what I do and that's a big project is to start doing these workshops with corporations and I love what's happening because it's teaching people something on an individual level to learn individual skills and as soon as they learn them they start applying them to their company and we start seeing systemic organizational cultural changes I know that systemic change begins with personal transformation most people don't believe it until they do it And then they can't believe they ever didn't think that way. So I'm doing these workshops, which are to teach sustainability leadership. So it's leadership that's specifically geared towards sustainability. Every company out there, if you're not acting, you're becoming irrelevant, and people are going to start looking at your competitors or the startups in your area. And if you act without genuineness, genuineness and authenticity, they're going to suspect you're greenwashing and they may attack you. But if you act, you personally, as a person in a company, Ideally, a leader of that company, someone with authority in the company. If you act genuinely, authentically, and effectively, then people you, – you, that means sharing your flaws. Then people will support you instead of attacking you. It sounds like a tightrope that you have to walk before you do it. But when I teach people, when I, when I walk people through these workshops, it, what looked like a tightrope before you do it is like a grand boulevard because you feel comfortable sharing their challenges, the flaws, the, the vulnerabilities – because of how you walk people through how I share these things in a way that people support you for them. That's the big thing now is the sustainability leadership workshops.
0: And where can people find you?
1: JoshuaSpodek.com. Everything's there. I link to all the social media and things like that. On Twitter, I'm at Spodek. Uh, in the upper right corner of JoshuaSpodek.com, you can click to the podcast, which is This Sustainable Life, as you mentioned. Uh, there's the, you can connect with me and send me emails through there. And Yeah, definitely if people are looking for leadership coaching or training or initiative coaching or training, or in particular, sustainability leadership, whether for personal because you want to get promoted, start something new, or you want to do it for your firm, these are the big things I'm working on these days.
0: And thank you, Josh, for educating our audiences today.
1: Thank you for having me back.